so we've looked at essentially discipleship. I want to spill that now into community. If you have a, a Bible with you, you can turn now to 1 John chapter 1. Uh, I went through a few years ago. I turned I turned 46 this year in, in, in November. I've already been through my midlife crisis, um, which was pretty low impact, if I if I if I if I can say, um, it, con- it it consisted, I think, entirely of becoming of, of going through a phase where I became interested in country music. That was it. I was as I look back, like what what was that all about? And I didn't know if it was gonna be a phase. When I got into it, I was like, I guess I like country music now. You know. Because I was, I never um, liked country music. In fact, I was one of those people. Like, if you ever asked me, especially when I was a kid, but even after, what kind of music do you like? I'd say like everything except for country, like literally anything, but not country music. And then one day, the radio in my car. This also dates me because I talk about listening to the radio in my car. Most people don't do that. My daughters are always trying to like plug things in in my car, and I'm like, no, don't. It's just one device at a time. The car is one device. It produces its own music. We'll just listen to what it says. And one day it was on, on country, and I never changed it. And I don't know why. Like every day, like for the first few days, I was like, why am I doing this? And after a while, you get to enjoy it, which is really weird. Um, but I'm out of that phase, which is good. And my daughters are very happy about it as well because they couldn't stand it. They can't stand country music. They're just like me. So I was the dad, the annoying dad who, um, when I drop them off for school, um, as soon as they open the door, like crank it up. So like they're, they're exiting in front of their friends to like boot scoot and boogie or something, you know, like that. Um, and what I discovered is like a lot of the, um, so I still like some of the old, like, I don't know if you even could qualify that, but some of like the, the old stuff, which I know is popular to like, but um, I genuinely, like Willie Nelson's probably my favorite, love Johnny Cash, you know, some of the, the, the Highwaymen stuff. But all the new stuff, or not all of it, but just like so much of the new stuff, it's like all the same. It's the same theme. Um, and I know there's like parodies about this, but literally it's like every song is about getting in the pickup truck and driving down to some body of water and a girl dancing in the back of the pickup truck, which is a scenario that has never happened in real life ever. And please don't tell me you, it, it, that you've danced in the back of a pickup truck, ladies, is by, you know, by the river or by the creek or by the, whatever the body of water is. Like, it's never happened. So it's just so much just recycling cliches. But every now and then I would hear a song that would make me... So the only modern guy that I came out of this phase liking is Eric Church. And I don't know if any of y'all care about Eric Church, but I came out going, okay, he's actually saying some stuff and he's got some good some good songwriting. But here's another song, and I don't know a whole lot about the rest of his country music, but when this song came on during my midlife crisis, um, it really like struck me in the heart. And it's by a country artist by the name of Darius Rucker, who I'm old enough to remember used to be named Hootie, if anyone remembers that. I know that's also dating myself, but he used to be Hootie. Now he's, he's I think it's his real name. I don't think he made up Darius Rucker. Like, you know, <laughs> It's like, I can't go by my given name of Hootie. I have to... Adopt a country name, Darius Rucker. Okay, Uh, But it's uh, these are some lyrics from a Darius Rucker song. Okay, He says, what if I told you sometimes I lose my faith? I wonder why someone like you would even talk to me. What if I told you there's no fixing me because everybody's already tried? Would you stay? Would you leave? I could wait. It'll all come out eventually. If I told you all the stupid things I've done that I blamed on being young, but I was old enough to know, I know. If I told you the mess that I can be when there's no one there to see, would you look the other way because you love me anyway? Pretty deep, isn't it? 
You see the mess that I am, but you love me anyway. I think deep down, this is, um, I think I said previously today as well, this, this, this kind of love is the, is the deepest seated need of every human being. It's the most significant yearning of our hearts beneath all the desires, beneath all of the longings, the deepest desire, the deepest longing that each of us has, no matter how we express it, is that we would be totally known and at the same time totally loved. We all want to be loved, but what we we really want to be is to be loved anyway, that somebody would love us anyway. And it's the fear, it's a fear that that kind of love isn't real, that it isn't true, that it cannot be ours, that prompts us to put up walls, to put up protective layers, facades to manage our images. We desperately want to believe that we can be loved anyway, but we secretly fear that such a love isn't possible. Well, what John is doing in this passage is is not just daring us to believe uh, um, that that love is possible, but he's outright declaring that this is ours for the having, actually. And this is why he speaks rather strongly about coming out from hiding. So we've looked previously at the purpose of discipleship, the power of discipleship. Now we're going to apply that to essentially the breakthrough to community, what discipleship, the context of discipleship, and, and, and what it takes to actually experience the kind of community that God is forming uh, with the gospel. So let's read 1 John chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and there is, no, and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with Him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the Word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we thank You for it. We give You all praise for this amazing Word. Please bless this final time that we have together for the goodness and the glory of Your Son. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Um, I was flying home from a speaking engagement not so long ago, and um, I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm an anxious person. I've gotten a lot better at flying. When I first started flying a lot, um, I was kind of a nervous flyer. You couldn't tell it by looking at it. Like, you wouldn't know. Like, I'm not jittery or anything. But inside, I'm just kind of like running through. Like, this isn't normal. This isn't right. You know, every sound that sounds different than sounds I've heard before, I'm thinking that doesn't, you know, there's something wrong. And, uh, but one time... Um, something happened that, I, that the experience was sort of the culmination of all of my fears and, and paranoia about flying. Essentially, we were coming in for a landing. I think this was, I was coming into Chicago or something. We are coming in for this landing, and um, there was, like, the, the clouds were really thick, so you couldn't really see anything until like, right as you broke the, you know, the cloud bank, and then you could see really well. And as we were coming down, suddenly, um, and we were so close, you could see like, the tops of buildings and things, um, we suddenly lurched back up into the sky. So we were coming in for a landing, and then we just like, it almost felt like a vertical kind of, um, you know, uh, ascent back up into the sky. And of course, everybody's realizing like, this isn't normal. You don't like come down and then jump right back up into there. And so people are pulling their earbuds out and looking around and everything. And, uh, you know, eventually we get up into the, into the air. And in my mind, like everything, like all the worst case scenarios are going on, you know. Um, and I've heard stories about landing gear not coming down properly or something like that. Um, and so we get up in, into the sky and eventually the, you know, the, the pilot comes on and um, they all sound the same. I don't know if they go to, like, in pilot school, they teach them to sound the same. It's like, oh, ladies and gentlemen. It's like, wow, man, it's like the same guy. every Or it's like some voice. I don't know. Uh, we're all ladies and gentlemen. He, um, he apologizes and everything. And what he said was, we couldn't land because there, the, there was another plane on the runway. Which, I don't know about you, but, like, I thought there was a guy, like, in a tower saying, like, everything's good. <laughs> you know, come on down. 
everything's clear, you know, it's, but they're, apparently they're eyeballing the whole thing. Like you get a, they're just like looking out the windshield. There's a plane there, you know, they have to jump back up. Um, yeah, so that was news to me, but I thought, okay, um, so I have all these stories. They, they go in my I almost died stories, uh, which my wife think is like the, the most hilarious thing in the world. She, she says like, you've never almost died. None of those are even, and some, she, she was there. Like there was a rogue wave in Australia one time that she was laughing and my, I'm like bleeding all over and everything. And she thought it was the most hilarious thing. Like, we almost died. Anyway, I think because, and this is what I tried to explain to my wife. If you land on another plane, I, I mean, I'm not an aviation expert, but if you're in a plane and you're coming down and you land on another plane, you probably die, right? Maybe you don't. It's, but it's fair to think you probably die. So this is my almost died story. So, of course, I'm doing a lot of soul searching after this event. And, uh, you know, eventually when you land again, they're like, all right, your connection is. I'm like, I don't know if I'm getting it on another plane, I don't know, unless you just clear the whole runway. I just was thinking, what was I doing in this moment, like, before I died? You ever, you ever think about that? Like, you're in a car crash, we're like, oh, I was listening to ELO, I shouldn't be listening, you know, all right? Uh, I was actually listening, uh, when this happened, when this, when this plane is in, I was listening to Snoop Dogg on my earbuds, <laughs> and I thought, I cannot die listening to Snoop Dogg. It, like, radically changed... Um, you know, like, I'm going to face Jesus, and he's going to be like, what are you, come on. You know? uh, so, like, it, like, I'm just thinking through all of that. You don't want to die listening to gin and juice. You don't want to, you know. But I also think, like, what did I do in the moment? Well, what happened was instinctively, when I realized, when I was afraid, and I didn't know what was happening, I was afraid, I put my hand over my face, and I, I started asking myself, like, why did I cover, cover my face? And I, so I thought, is it because, like, I, you know, I didn't want to see what was about to happen. I didn't want people to see me or that I was afraid or something like that. But I began to trace this um, narratively and, and theologically. And I think, actually, hiding when we're scared um, goes all the way back to childhood, does it not, right? You get up in the middle of the night, you need to drink a water or, um, you know, you need to use the restroom or something, and you're very scared quiet and creepy. Why? Because the boogeyman is under the bed or in your closet or something like that. And, uh, um, and then when you're done, you run back, you like race, you're like, you know, you're so fast and you jump in the bed and you cover with the blanket. Why would you cover with the blanket? Well, because the boogeyman cannot get through the impenetrable fortress of the fleece blanket, you know, or whatever it is. Um, this is the instinct to cover. Well, that can be traced all the way back to the beginning of time, can't it? With Adam and Eve. They, they sowed fig leaves to cover themselves. And, and not only that, when they heard the Lord coming, they hid in the bushes. And we've been trying to hide our sin and our shame ever since. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? Because just as the Lord came looking for Adam and Eve, when we encounter the living God, there is no hope in hiding. John says, God is light. There's absolutely no darkness in Him. Now that's a parallelism, uh, just in terms of the exegesis of the thing, it's, it's very similar to what we see in a lot of the, the Hebrew poetry, like in the Psalms, for instance. Basically, the same thought repeated in a different way for emphasis. So the, um, the positive version is given first, God is light, and then the same thought is repeated from the negative side, and there's absolutely no darkness in him. And so the point is this, God is a pure light. What happens to darkness when you turn the light on in a room? It is instantly vanquished. It disappears. The kind of light that God is we see throughout the pages of the Old Testament. He's leading the Israelites by fire. He's revealing His holy law with such blazing brightness that the recipient's face is glowing afterwards. 
He's so bright. He's such a bright light, so glorious that even if you were to hide in the cleft of a rock and the backside of that glory came by, you would be lit up. The light of God is pure and perfect. It is illuminating and exposing because that's what light does, and that's what God does. In essence, what John is helping us to see is that the light of God reveals everything. So here's point number one. We cannot hide from God. We cannot hide from God. But we try, don't we? We try. I think of the uh, uh, Samaritan woman at the well. Do you remember the woman who showed up to get water at Jacob's well, heat of the day? We could assume, reading between the lines, that the reason she's going at that time of day is because she wants to be alone. Most people who are drawing water go in the cool of the morning or the cool of the evening. You're not going in the hottest part of the day unless you don't want anyone to be around. And what we learn in the ensuing conversation, we learn maybe why she doesn't want anybody else around. She's tired of being uh, talked about, looked down on, whispered about something. And as she's walking up to this well, there's this man standing. She doesn't know it's the Lord of the universe, but he's standing there as if he's waiting for her. And of course he is. And as the conversation develops, and Jesus has this irritating habit of always going right to the point, right getting in the heart. You, you tra- like Jesus is not a respecter of personal space at all. There's like no boundaries for him. And she's trying to put up these boundaries for good reason. You know her story. You, you can see that she, you know, she's been exploited. She's been hurt. Um, certainly she has sin to repent of, but she's also just been used. And, and so she's you know, putting up these things and she doesn't want to interact. And Jesus keeps going after her heart over and over and over again. And she's trying to stiff arm him like, oh, you want to talk at theology or you want to, you know, like you Jews worship there and Samaritans, we worship here. Who knows where you're supposed to worship? She's trying to keep it on the surface and Jesus just keeps going beneath the surface over and over again. Well, she's us. We do this with Jesus all the time. We're always trying to stiff arm him with, with our religiosity, with our behavior, with, with even our interest in theology, you know, all those sorts of things. Do you think that if you just study enough theology, go through enough courses, do enough Bible study, you can keep Jesus out of the areas of your heart that he most wants to get at? It's so weird that we try to do that. We try to stiff-arm Jesus with our religiosity. And you might be able to keep your friends and your family and everybody else at arm's length, only letting them see what you want them to see, but you can't stiff-arm Jesus. He sees your heart, and he goes after it. I think of Jesus with the rich young ruler who wanted Jesus to accept everything that he was willing to give. But Jesus knew what was in his heart, and so he asked for that. And in fact, I very often think the areas of our lives that we are most desperate to protect are the very areas that Jesus most wants to deal with in us. John says there's absolutely no darkness in him. To the extent that you are dwelling in the dark is the extent to which you have not surrendered to the healing holiness of God. And hiding doesn't make any sense. Psalm 139, where can I go to escape you? Nowhere. If I go into the sky, you're there. If I dig a hole into the ground as deep as I can dig it, you are there. You know every secret thing. Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, there is nothing hidden that will not be revealed and nothing concealed that will not be brought to light. I think of this about my own secret sin, my own, my own sin that, 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 that lies unconfessed. Um, and I think of it whenever I have a friend who I thought I knew who gets exposed or who falls in some significant way. And I think, how did I not see? How did I not know? And they had become experts at hiding, at protecting. But everything comes out on the wash eventually. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in darkness, we're lying and not practicing the truth. 
And because there is no darkness in God at all, I uh, would also say that if we say we walk in darkness, nobody can see this. Nobody will ever find out. We're lying as well. Because while we might be able to conceal ourselves from everybody else, we can never conceal ourselves from God. There is no darkness so dark. There is no corner too hidden. There is no sin too secret that it is not seen by the God who is light. You should not hide from God because he sees everything, knows everything, will eventually reveal everything. You cannot hide from God. But secondly, secondly, we must not hide from each other. We must not hide from each other. This is a really curious connection that John makes here. And, and, and he does it later in his letter, um, in this letter, when he starts talking about the love of God. In chapter 4, for instance, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another because love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And in fact, the one who does not love does not know God because God is love. So you notice there that he isn't simply saying God is love and therefore you can be loved by God and you can love God, the vertical relationship. He's saying God is love and therefore you should love others. Just as in our text here, he states it negatively there as well. If you don't love others, you don't know God. Well, how does he put it here? Verse 6, if we say we have fellowship with him, but we're walking in darkness, we're lying and we're not practicing the truth. In other words, if you walk in darkness, you are not experiencing fellowship with God. But it's not just fellowship with God that the light of God impacts. Look at verse 7. This is really interesting. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Notice it doesn't say we have fellowship with God. I mean, that's true. That is true. To walk in the light of God is to have fellowship with God. That's not a false uh, uh, a statement. That's the point of verse 6, however. But John writes, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. Now, why would he put it that way? It's, it's like a plot twist. Why would he put it that way? I think it's because of, um, because of this. If, if, if Christian brothers and sisters are not honest and transparent and confessional with each other, we don't really have fellowship with each other's true self. We only have fellowship with um, each other's like religious avatars. <laughs> You know, the best version of ourselves that we put on when it's time to go to church. That's who we have relationship with. That's who we have fellowship with. We just know the best version of each other that we can manage to uh, pretend to be when it's time to do the whole church thing. And John comes and he shines the light of Christ into this religious charade that so many of us call church. Now nobody, least of all Jesus himself, I think, is suggesting that being real and transparent and confessional with each other poses no risk. It can cost us. It can cost us embarrassment. It can cost us our reputation. It can cost us some kind of hurt or pain. But the reality is the light's going to expose all of that eventually anyway. And the testimony of the New Testament, which doesn't know of a church community without sin, and brokenness in it, is that the cost of hiding is actually greater than the cost of being known. Jesus' brother James in his epistle even connects confession to healing 
to healing. <clears throat> when I was a pastor, I, I'd heard just about everything confessed, but the people who would come to confess didn't know that. And uh, many times they have this image of what a religious leader or pastor is, is, is like or, 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 or what holiness is all about. And, and so they're scared. They want to divulge something, share something, confess something. And, and, and they're scared. They don't know what you've heard. In fact, the thing you're about to tell them may be the worst thing this person has ever heard. And what if they reject you? And what if they rebuke you and, and, and um, you know, condemn you and judge you? And so people would come in for counseling. And, I, and, and, and you could just see in, their, in, in, in the way they're carrying themselves that it's not just small talk. And typically they would try to work up to this thing. And I remember... Um, this uh, 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 dear lady who um, actually became a good friend of ours. Um, she'd come to our church. She was dragged to our church as an alcoholic by her husband, who also who was not a believer. Neither one of them were believers when they came. And he dragged her to the church basically as sort of a last resort to get clean, to get, you know, to get sober. And not only did she get sober, she found Jesus. She got saved. And that was not what the husband was interested in <laughs> at all. He was just trying to get some religion that might replace the idol of alcohol. He wanted the religious idol. And, um, and so he left, and, she, and, and she'd been coming you know, by herself for a while, and, and um, I had the privilege of baptizing her. But anyway, she came in, and I could just see, like, she was so nervous. Like, the, the, the chair was practically shaking, like, rattling on the floor uh, of my study. And she was making, you know, small talk and chit-chat. And finally, I just, you know, decided to get to the point and relieve her of, um, of her fear. And so I just broke the ice. I just said... Um, Tammy, do you have, uh, is, hey, just let me ask you, is, is, is there a body in, in your trunk? And she kind of looked at me uh, like some of y'all are looking at me right now. She was, she's like, should I stop? She goes, what? What did you say? I said, is there, is there a corpse in the trunk of your car? <laughs> and she was like, like offended, you know. Um, no, what? Why would you ask me that? Why on earth? Would, would you say that to me? And I said, oh, okay, good. Because like, I said, like, I've heard almost everything in this room, but I have not heard, Pastor, I have a body in the trunk of my car. And so if that's what it is, like, I don't know, like, we'll figure something out. I'll give you, you know, like, I'll help you out. Um, but, um, but if that's not what it is, you can just tell me whatever it is that you're afraid to say. And what she was afraid to say was that she'd had an affair years ago. This is before she was even a believer. She cheated on her husband. And, um, she had repented, uh, you know, if you can call it that, of, of that even back then. It wasn't something ongoing after she was found out. And she, of course, felt very guilty and was very apologetic. And she'd been kind, you know, kind of doing penance with her husband ever since um, for that sin. And in fact, even after she'd become a, a, a Christian, she was hearing grace on audio at our church, but living law on video at home. And her husband just constantly holding that over her bringing it up as a trump card in every argument. She lived just in the fish tank of, of, of condemnation. And she just wanted to know what, you know, what the religious leader had to say about that, what the pastor had to say about that. She was so afraid. I had to make sure that she knew this is a safe place to be yourself. This is the place where you confess sin and hear the word of the gospel, that we're good news people here. <clears throat> Not too long ago, I had a uh, a young man reached out, wanted to meet with me, and, and it was a similar thing. I, I could just see he was working up to um, the conversation. Essentially, what he was sharing was that he, um, uh, that he struggled with same-sex attraction. 
and didn't feel like he could ever tell anybody. Every, you know, every Christian peer that he'd ever known, he was afraid to say because it would obviously redefine the relationship and make people feel uh, uncomfortable and all these sorts of things. And, um, you know, he didn't believe that, that homosexuality was, uh, was sinless or was okay, and he was committed you know, to live a, a single life and a chaste life and to follow Jesus and purity. Um, and, and he prayed that he'd be rid of this, but, um, but, but nobody really knew about it. When people have those conversations with us, or you have those conversations with others, there's, there's things that you have had to broach with friends, with someone maybe you sinned against, and they didn't even know it. What is it that we're really looking for? Yes, to kind of get it off our chest. Yes, the catharsis of confession. But what we're wanting to hear is that somebody would say, I love you. That they would love us anyway. And it's only through the grace of God that we can do that. This amazing message that we have. We're all in this thing together. And and in fact, we're all in the special category of sin. I may not sin like you or you like me, but we all stand needy before the holiness of God. It exposes the worst of us, the real us. And so to the extent that we're able, we want to make sure that the fellowship, the Christian fellowship, is an unsafe place for every kind of sin, but a very safe place for every kind of sinner. But we have to put that to the test. And we can't do it in the darkness. When I discovered Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book, Life Together, I I was in desperate hiding. And, and, And the book just discombobulated me utterly. I was um, attending a men's uh, small group. We were reading um, you know, different books together. Someone suggested this little book. We all agreed. And they didn't know about my life uh, falling apart. And I didn't want them to know. And here I'm reading this book that talks about stepping into the light, being known by your brothers and sisters, um, existing in true, authentic fellowship. And it just messed me up especially passages like this. I just want to read you this passage from Life Together. Um, Bonhoeffer says, He who is alone with his sin is utterly alone. It may be that Christians, notwithstanding corporate worship, common prayer, all their fellowship and service, may still be left to their loneliness. The final breakthrough to fellowship does not occur because uh, uh, though they have fellowship with one another as believers and as devout people, they do not have fellowship as sinners. The pious fellowship permits no one to be a sinner. So everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the fellowship. We dare not be sinners. In fact, many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. The fact is we are sinners, but it's the grace of the gospel. This is still Bonhoeffer, by the way. It is the grace of the gospel which is so hard for the pious to understand. It confronts us with the truth and says, you are a sinner, a great desperate sinner. Now come as the sinner that you are to the God who loves you. He wants you as you are. He doesn't want anything from you, a sacrifice, a work. He wants you alone. God has come to you to save the sinner. Be glad this message is liberation through truth. You can hide nothing from God. The mask that you wear before men will do you no good before Him. He wants to see you as you are. He wants to be gracious to you. You don't have to go on lying to yourself and your brothers as if you were without sin. You can dare to be a sinner. 
I don't know if that's kind of like Luther's uh, uh, letter to the young man where he said, uh, sin boldly. You ever remember that? Sin boldly, Luther said. And, and, and this is what he meant, to be bold enough to admit that you're a sinner. Bonhoeffer finishes with the line. I don't know if this is where it comes from, but um, the cliche, but what he uses it in this context, I think it works. He says, thank God for this. He loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Look, I, I, I know the reasons that we don't live transparency, you know, transparently with each other. We're afraid. We're embarrassed. Maybe we don't want to be a burden. That's sometimes that, that works through our brain. If I tell people, they're not going to reject me, but then I become their project. You know, then I become, you know, um, some sort of fix-it, you know, project for them. Or we just don't want to be judged. Sometimes we don't do it because we tried it before and we got burnt. Some of you have that story. I did confess once and it blew up in my face. And I lost relationships. People did judge me. They did gossip about me. They did turn their nose up. I want to, as, as, as gently and as pastorally as I can say to you, Acting based on the sins of others in a way that is a sin itself ultimately amounts to a distrust in God Himself. Because people are mean, and I know people are judgmental, and they just act weird. Maybe they're not trying to be mean and judgmental, but it just redefines a relationship. It gets awkward, maybe. You notice this in small group settings, as soon as somebody gets real, it's like the record scratch effect in a movie, right? It's like, oh, that's what we're doing. I thought we could just kind of stay up on the surface for a little while. Somebody suddenly made it real. It gets weird. But if we believe in the gospel, we don't have a choice any longer to live in the dark. If we walk in darkness, we're lying and not practicing the truth. I think, do I want to get out of this experience on earth everything that the, you know, that the gospel would empower me to get? Do I want to walk in the light around every corner? Do I want to let fear of judgment and worry about reputation rule my life? Jesus once told a story about talents. There were three servants, each given a measure of talents by their master. And he went on a trip. And when he came back, there were two guys who had doubled the investment. But only, um, the only guy the master got mad at is the one who buried his talent in the ground, afraid to do anything with it, afraid to take a risk. Do I want to see my heavenly Father with sin still hidden and say to him, see, I kept it nice and secret. Nobody knew. I played it nice and safe. I, fool, I fooled everybody. Do I want to get to heaven having held out on my brothers and sisters? Do I want to get to heaven and expect Jesus to say, great job never opening up to anybody. You really maximized your time on earth. It's also, let's be honest, sometimes a, um, a distrust, a disrespect of our brothers and sisters. This is, this is how I think about this. Whenever I'm afraid to confess or tell a, um, a dear brother or sister you know, something that I've been going through um, for fear that it will burden them, not that they'll judge me or something, because I, I wouldn't, um, you know, say everything to everybody, but but people that I that I know love me. Sometimes I I, I withhold from them because I, I don't want to burden them. I don't want them to to be sad. I just don't want to change the nature of the relationship. And then I think if if I knew they were sitting there thinking that about me, I would be really hurt. That they would think, oh, I can't burden Jared with this. 
I can't tell Jared this. Yeah, you know, I don't want to do this to him. I would feel like they thought we weren't really great friends. So sometimes withholding is 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 a is a weird kind of disrespect because we're not we're not testing the the power of grace, the versatility of grace. Now I know that it's fear that keeps us from doing this, but this is what faith is given to us for, and the Holy Spirit, which works against a spirit of fear. John is making a total connection between our fellowship with one another, our walking in the light, and our practicing the truth. It's a package deal. To believe the gospel is to turn from sin to Jesus, from darkness to light, to turn from solitude also to fellowship. So you can affirm the gospel is true intellectually and live as if it's not true, which is the call John is making. If God is light and you walk in darkness, what does that say about your belief in the gospel? The whole point of church is that so no sinner seeking Jesus would have to do it alone. And it doesn't matter what category of sin or struggle you have. The church of God has as much room as the grace of God will hold. Anyone willing to repent should find space in the community of the gospel. What might God, in fact, do with our churches if we simply opened up to him and to each other and said, Lord, do what you want with us, even if it's embarrassing? Even if it costs me, blank check, we wave the white flag, have your way. And here's the deal, when we do this, when we take this risk, we can actually begin to see how brilliant the light of the gospel is, how far grace goes. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid of shame and condemnation because, and here's my third and final point, close with this, we can be hidden by Christ in himself. We can be hidden by Christ and himself. Why did Jesus expose the sin and shame of the woman at the well? Not for the same reason everybody else did it. He exposed it that he would cover it, finally. Why did Jesus puncture the rich young ruler's self-righteous religiosity? Because he wanted him to trade it in for the treasure of himself. The same light that exposes us heals us. And we get a, a picture of this in those early pages of the Bible, right after the fall. Adam and Eve are called to account. They'd covered themselves in fig leaves. They were hiding in the bushes. The Lord calls them out, and he says, that ain't going to cut it, but I'm not going to leave you naked and vulnerable. I'm going to cover you. You do need to be covered. And so he covers them with something else. The Lord God made a clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed. In a way, this is evidence of the first sacrifice. They had brought death into the world through their sin, and he's showing them only death is going to cover them now. And it's perhaps the first foreshadow of Christ's sacrifice for us, shedding his blood that covers us, covers our shame, covers our unrighteousness. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. The blood of Jesus. So if his blood has covered your sin, why are you still walking in fear and hiding? <clears throat> you know, the one place I, I, I finally felt at home, finally felt like I've arrived. This is it. This is where I was born to be. I got chewed up and spit out of. And like many of you, I have a lot of reasons to never open up to anybody. I've been burned so many times. I've been stabbed in the back and in the front. I have so many reasons to think I never take that risk again ever again. And that would be the safest and to some extent the most understandable way to live my life. And yet here comes my Savior who shouldn't be embarrassed about anything. He has no sin. 
He's also the least socially awkward person you ever met. Always knows what to say in every situation. He's, 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 the, he's the opposite of me. Perfect and also very socially adept. That's something I look through. And while I'm trying to pile up as many fig leaves as I can, you know, scurry up, as many as it might take to impress you, to make you think something about me that I want you to think, Jesus is instead exposing himself to all of the hurt, all of the pain, all of the weakness, all the condemnation I'm trying to avoid. All the stuff I'm trying to get out of. He says, put it on me. Just, just put it on me, all of it. Don't leave anything out. Put it, all, put it all on me. You can't be any more exposed than Jesus was on the cross. And he went there for us. And so this is what I think John means by the light also. He means a vision of the glory of God, the radiance of his loveliness exemplified in the cross and resurrection. It is this light that is transformative for us. Paul uses this vision talk in Colossians 3 when he says, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And in Colossians 3.3, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. See, the gospel isn't trying to expose us to shame us. The good news is that Christ was exposed for us that we can confess without fear and find our refuge in him. If we are hidden with Christ and God, we have nothing left to hide. Peace for us, who can be against us? It might cost us a little something, but the reward for walking in the light far surpasses keeping whatever it is we're trying to protect. I'll read this little excerpt from um, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, and this will be our, our closing remarks here. I don't know if you're familiar with the story. Eustace Scrub, you remember Eustace Scrub, if you've read Voyage of the Dawn Treader, becomes a dragon um, because he's, he's hoarding a treasure, right? Why would he become a dragon? Lewis has him... Uh, uh, essentially cut off from humanity because dragons are cut off from humanity. And even like the skin, the, the, you know, the protective armor is, is reflective of what happens when we try to, to, uh, to hide and, 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 and hoard and be secretive. And, and so he knows he needs to be healed. And he finds himself in a garden and there's a well and he knows if somehow if he can just get in the water, it will heal him. But he can't get in the way he is. So this is what happens in Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Uh, then the lion said, and this is Aslan, um, you'll have to let me undress you. And I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. And the very first tear he made was so deep, I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel away. You know, if you've ever picked the scab of a sore place, it hurts like Billy. Oh, but it is such fun to see it coming away. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off of me, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and even knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I, smooth and soft as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. And then he caught hold of me, and I didn't like that much, for I was very tender underneath and now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. And it smarted like anything, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all the pain had gone. And then I saw why. I turned into a boy again. Walking in the light may sting a little or a lot. 
but it is far preferable to life in the dark. And on top of that, it is the only way to healing. I'll pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you for these people. Thank you for this afternoon. I pray that it would be stewarded to, um, yes, our help to each other, but also to our affections for your son. And it's in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.